Welcome to Refactor This, sponsored by vFunction. In each episode, we talk application modernization tools, concepts, and advice with industry experts. My name is Oliver White, and in this episode of Refactor This, I'm joined by Matt Rabel. Matt is a well-known Java champion, conference speaker, author, video producer, and currently developer advocate at Okta. I've known Matt for quite some time now. I've always admired his energy, honesty, and opinions when it comes to modernization efforts with web development, security, authentication, and much more. Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast, mate. Yeah, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. It's great to see you. Did I uh, did I miss anything in, in the introduction? Maybe you want to add something about Volkswagen buses? Yeah, I was going to say, like, I am a classic Volkswagen lover. I have two of the rarest Volkswagens in the world, and I drive them until they run out of gas or break down, and that happens every year. So it's good to uh, have that kind of adventure in my life. I believe you're uh, you're an award-winning uh, Volkswagen bus owner, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, my 1966, I call him Hefe the bus because he's kind of like Hefeweizen. He's white on top and, you know, yellow <laughs> on the bottom. He's from Germany, and uh, he won best of show at the largest Volkswagen show in Colorado this summer. So we didn't even know it until like it comes over the loudspeaker and I think I might've cried. Ah. <laughs> well, that's, that's awesome. And if folks will check out your Twitter handle, which I will include in the show notes, they'll be able to see some pictures of Hefe the bus, I believe. Yeah. He's got his own hashtag Hefe the bus. So yeah. the bus. I'll make sure to include that. So when I invited you to join us on Refactor This, you actually described yourself as a reluctant thought leader. You're a Java champion. You're very well known in the industry. But these days, you're not actually coding directly right now. And you've also made it clear that you like JavaScript. So, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> yes, I'm one of the few Java champions that likes JavaScript, right? And I don't even yeah. think there's many that like TypeScript. For the most part, they're just... Uh... <laughs> They're against anything that's not Java, and, and maybe they're bitter about the using of the name back in the day of, of naming it JavaScript, but that was completely a marketing thing, and a lot of the reason that I like it is that was my beginning. Like I'm one of those people that says I started programming with HTML, and people are like, that's not a language, but for me it was, and I learned a ton doing it, and it was really you know enjoyable for me in the 90s, and then I didn't get into Java until the early 2000s, and that was mostly because the C++ turned Java programmers on the team weren't producing fast enough. So I started picking up books and learning it and figured it out. And so, yeah, I've had a long career doing both. And uh, it's just been fun. I like writing code. And, and these days I call myself an example programmer because I'm a developer advocate. I still get into production, but my production is, you know, the blog post being published or the example getting done. It's not, you know, actually pushing your Kubernetes architecture up to, you know, Google Cloud and hoping it all works. Yeah, uh, hoping and praying, right? Well, you, you've been quite involved with the J-Hipster framework for, for a long time, or maybe library is a more accurate term for it. Oh, we call it a whole platform these days. Okay, and that's because so it's the J-Hipster platform. And I, I recall uh, blue uh, bow ties and, uh, and, and, yeah. and that. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite talks is at DevOps Belgium, I think it was 2015, and I, I started as an old-fashioned Java developer, you know, drinking scotch, and then became a Java hipster by the end. And because I was in Belgium, I actually had to go buy, 
like a good Belgian beer to drink, right? Because in the U.S., like a hipster would have drank a PBR at the end and it would have been funny. But in Belgium, they would be like, why are you drinking such shitty beer, you know? Why did you bring a $1 can of beer to Belgium in your seat? Right. <laughs> well, it could have been mushroom coffee. So as a as a developer advocate that is, you know, not coding yourself on a daily basis, you know, what what sort of conversations do you have with people in your role and, you know, what do they tell you is is hurting them the most or their biggest pains? Well, I think, you know, and Jay Hipster kind of reflects this. One of the things that I've discovered and it's, you know, I started with Okta in 2017 and so it's been, you know, over 5 years. And what I see happening a lot of times is people still doing like authentication in their spa apps on the front end and they're storing their access tokens. They're doing the authentication there. And then they're talking to a back end that they also write. And it's just like, if you can do authentication on the back end and use plain old session cookies to keep your state with the front end, that actually works and is the most secure. And developers have a hard time with that because they've been taught that they're supposed to do restful architectures and be stateless and everything like that. And really it's easy to scale even if you have like session cookies because guess who uses session cookies? Like Netflix, LinkedIn, like the major, you know, big companies and even microservices like at a lot of these big companies wasn't necessary until they had a thousand developers on staff, right? They started with a monolith. Even at Okta, we have a monolith, right? And so the scaling of a monolith isn't hard. The scaling of people working on that monolith is the hard part. And that's why a lot of them move to microservices. That raises an interesting point. We've, we've often seen companies that come to us for help decomposing monoliths describe their team structure as being mimicking the system architecture. So if you've got a huge monolithic system, then your team organization seems to also mimic that in having a, a large hierarchy. So it actually, from what you just described, it sounds like the team organized itself into maybe micro teams and then had the impact on the, on the system architecture from that direction. Right. And one of the things that I did when I was at LinkedIn, this is back in like 2008, is I did like a study because at the time they had everything in a monolith using Java and they also had like an app that was using Ruby on Rails. That was a Facebook app, but it was extremely successful in the sense that they were widely known for having developed it and people loved it. And then they also had a recruiting app that was built in Grails. And so the CTO like, came to me and he was like, Matt, you have to study like Ruby on Rails and Grails and come to me in two weeks and tell me which one we should use. And after two weeks of like talking to everyone, I was like, you should use both because if you make these people not use their chosen framework, they're going to leave, right? Like they really are passionate about this framework and they'd rather do that than actually, you know, worry about what app they're developing or whatever. So fast forward, like as part of that advice, I basically told some of the engineers, like, I think Java on the back end is great, but you should look into more dynamic languages on the front end. And now they have hundreds of microservices and they've kind of followed that model where they do a lot of, you know, back end stuff and the typed languages and a lot of the front end stuff and JavaScript and things. Interesting. That's a fascinating perspective because we, we often see it going the other way, which is that the 
system requirements or, or the modernization requirements insist on having something like a microservices architecture and then teams have to somehow uncongeal themselves and organize into the sort of team that can support microservices with that are also you know decoupled and asynchronously communicating and so on yeah i think it's really hard for companies to like adopt microservices because of the nature of the team needs to be self-encapsulated right and be able to come with with ideas and maintain it in production just companies <laughs> haven't worked like that traditionally right they're like we have engineering and we have operations they don't work together they talk to each other but they're not on the same team and the people that are coming up with the ideas right the product owners like really like it's a tough for them to i think manage like the hierarchy and the structure when things are like that and i think you can probably organize it like you traditionally do but then on a day-to-day -day, that team should be working together right and talking all the time and kind of feel like that's their team more so than you know i'm part of product marketing or whatnot yeah yeah i wanted to ask you about application modernization and how it actually interfaces with the sort of work that you do at okta which is you know security authentication identification and you'll have an opportunity to explain a little bit more okta has grown quite a lot in the last five years i i can see in the last year, we've seen in a CIO survey that application modernization jumped from, you know, basically barely in the top 10 to a number three priority following cybersecurity and, you know, optimizing system performance as a general goal. When you encounter development teams and they're looking at adopting new tooling or frameworks for security, which is a, the number one priority, obviously, but also identity authentication. We're talking about, as you were mentioning, session cookies and, you know, not necessarily uh, muddying the, the front end versus back end opportunities for modernization. I guess my question is, what sort of topics come across your radar when it comes to modernizing an aging application with developers? But I think it's funny. I have a few different things to address there. One is like, I think uh, companies might want to do application modernization because their stack is old enough that their developers don't want to work on it anymore, right? Like they're doing Spring Framework with Spring MVC and XML, and they haven't updated to the latest releases in 10 years, and it's kind of in maintenance mode, but the developers are like, I really want to learn Spring Boot. I really want to use Spring Boot, or I want to use Kotlin. Like, how can we you know, upgrade our framework. So I think that's one point. Now I'm going to forget the other two, but let me see if I can recall them. <laughs> oh, another one was, uh, was OAuth. So OAuth, you know, came out in like 2012 and it came out before we had cross origin resource sharing in browsers. And so that's why there's things like the implicit flow where the access token actually comes through the browser URL. And so if you have web server logs, it can be in there. Um, and there's other things with OAuth uh, password grant flow allows you to pass in a username and a password, which is like the whole point of using OAuth is so you don't do that. Like there's things in the OAuth spec that they've kind of pushed out and said, OAuth 2.1 is a better version of OAuth. You should use that. But I think like all the OAuth providers are going to offer everything because they don't want to be pushing anyone out, right? They want to be inclusive of whatever you want to use. So there's a lot of education that we do in that area, just being like, 
you know, use OAuth, but, you know, don't use these parts of OAuth because it's, I mean, if you give your app the ability to view credentials, you're in a, you're not using OAuth properly, right? Like OAuth is designed to do your authentication somewhere else and then just come back with a token, right? And so that's part of application monetization that we talk about a lot. And then, uh, you know, a lot of it is, uh, is almost developer efficiency, right? Like companies are looking to do application monetization so their developers can be more efficient, right? There's faster frameworks, you know, new releases might give them that performance they're looking for and stuff like that. And so I think there's a lot of education in our ecosystem that says you have to do like Scrum and Agile and all these to be more efficient, but really developers just need more sleep. Like, and I know this as a person that's getting older, right? But if my 30 or 20 year old self knew that, right, I could have maybe got even more done, right? And not burn out at times. From your perspective, is there a difference between securing and authenticating a monolith versus a series of microservices? Let's say somebody has gone through the, the process of refactoring and modernizing a monolithic application. Is there a difference in understanding of authentication, identification, and security, and so on, between these two different types of stacks. Yeah, I think so because what I've seen just in like J Hipster generated microservices, there's a lot of like controversy even amongst the community because people feel like you shouldn't have identity in a lot of the mo in microservices, right? Like there shouldn't be a user. It should just be a dedicated function that doesn't involve the user, right? And so in that case, like you might send an access token, but access tokens don't have any identity identity information in them. And so there is a way using OAuth and OpenID Connect that you can look up the user with that access token. But I've often struggled with members of the team being like, no, I like to be able to get the user information in my microservices. And then, you know, often it's the practitioners that are like, we don't need that user information, right? This microservice does one thing, doesn't care about identity. So if you're in a monolith, typically the identity is there, right? If you're using Spring Security, you can always get it from a thread local and stuff like that. But when you're doing microservices, right? And you're doing OAuth, like that identity isn't there unless you code something to look it up. And how we do it in JHipster now is we look for a couple of claims in the access token. And if they're not there, they are identity information, right? It's like first name, last name. Then we go look it up for you and we automatically do that and do some caching so it doesn't happen on every request and all that. But I think uh, it is interesting how people might develop it different ways, right? They might be like, our microservices do not have identity. Don't worry about it. But then other people might be like, no, I, I have user information that I need down in that microservice. How do I get it? It almost sounds like an engineer aiming for, you know, fully reactive microservices or even serverless sorts of architectures are looking to combine, let's say, state with identity. And yeah, I mean, at Okta, we, we try to say that identity is the main thing you need, right? But as developers, we've always been like, no, I need it when I need it, right? I don't need it right away. So would you consider it a best practice for somebody who's developing a, a serverless application that is fully stateful? I'm thinking of um, Kalix, formerly Akka Serverless by Lightbend, which is, you know, stateful serverless as, as it's been called. Is identity and authentication something that needs to be treated differently than application state? I think the beauty of OpenID Connect is you can always look it up. 
Mm. Right. There's a user info endpoint that you can hit with the access token and you'll get identity information back. Right. So there it does have that like built in. So I think that's different where you don't have to keep the state. You don't have to keep the identity of fuel. You don't want it and you can look it up. And serverless, like, you know, that's what a lot of the frameworks now are trying to do with Graal VM and you know, native is make it so these Java frameworks can be used in a serverless environment. And it's funny because I wrote this blog post and I did all this work with Jay Hipster to make it work with Spring Native and it doesn't support caching. Spring Native doesn't support caching at this point just because no one's written the code to make it all work, right? But my feeling is if you're doing serverless, you don't need caching, right? Because you're basically starting doing something stopping. And if you need caching, then run it on the JVM. Don't use GraalVM. The caching and all that is built for these applications that run on the JVM for weeks or months at a time, right? And so I think it's kind of a different paradigm. And I think at the same time, what I see in the developer community is developers want to learn microservices. They want to learn serverless. They want to learn GraalVM. But really, the best practice is start with the monolith. Yeah. Right? And maybe... <laughs> Maybe do something like asynchronous messaging within your monolith so you can break it up easier. But like, there's just so much, I think, cognitive load goes into people trying to build their resumes when they can actually build something that works much faster if they just build a monolith. So that's an interesting take because I, I feel like not a lot of people are, are going to just come out and say it. And you mentioned earlier that Okta, at least some of their some of your services there are monolithic systems. Would you are you able to talk a little bit more about that and how things work, or is that taboo? I don't have much insight into it because I don't work in engineering, and for all I know, I'll get my hand slapped for saying it's a monolith, but I don't think so. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's it not actually a monolith, loop. Matt. Come on. <laughs> but let's it say, is, let's say it, it has it has some major elements of of a monolithic architecture and what you're saying is start off with that and see if the evolution towards microservices makes sense later is that right but also yes i am saying that but one of the things we've experienced at octa is, is what a lot of these monolithic teams experience is you know when i was at linkedin like we had to have mac pros with maxed out memory to like work on the app, right? Mm -hmm. And it would take 20 minutes to start. Like, and it was an ant script at the time, right? This is back in 2008, but you would run this ant script and you'd wait for 20 minutes to start. And if you didn't turn on debugging, you had to do it again, right? So it was in debug mode or whatever. And so it was a real pain. And Octa's kind of experienced that as well, where people just need to work on this section. And they don't want to spend, you know, 30 minutes starting everything. They want to spend a minute starting this where they want that zero turnaround where, you know, they can actually just modify a file and recompile it and get it reloaded and stuff. And so, you know, I think that's our biggest goal now is how do we take this monolith and start 5% of it so we can be more productive as developers just working on that. And so I don't think that matters whether it's microservices or monolith because, some people have their microservices so coupled that you still need to start the whole stack. And if they're doing it right, maybe there's endpoints that are always available for people on a test or a QA server or something like that. And they can point their local environment at those without starting everything, right? So it's almost like developing an architecture that developers can be productive with and not have to have these super beefy laptops to run everything. Mm -hmm. How does uh, using the cloud, uh, cloud infrastructure play into that with, you know, we don't need beefy laptops anymore. We just need a good internet connection and 
AWS or Azure or Google Cloud can can take care of that for us. Right. And I have heard that a lot. And guess who says it? The folks that work for AWS, Azure and Google Cloud, right? <laughs> it's not the developers that are doing the work. So I do think I like the idea. I would love to take like a less powerful laptop and be able to do that. But like that's useful when you're traveling. And guess what you don't have when you're traveling? Good Internet. So it kind of falls on its face then. And so I love the idea, but that means I always have to be at my desk at home with good internet. And I'm the type of person that likes to go places and work other places. Right. And if, if I'm at a coffee shop and I can't be productive because the internet's bad, that stinks. Right. Because right now, if I develop a J hipster app, like I can run everything locally and a lot of it's in Docker and I can be productive without internet, you know? Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about the term technical debt and what you think of when you hear that. And maybe not only from the technology perspective, but the psychological perspective, because you mentioned earlier that one of the biggest challenges of modernization is that developers don't necessarily want to work with old stuff. The great resignation is upon us. Developers can go across the street for a 20% increase in salary and be working with something new. So when you hear the term technical debt, what, what comes to mind in terms of the technological side of it and the psychological side. I think it's interesting because for the most part, like there is no beautiful architecture out there, right? Most of the big companies that have worked for, you know, there's LinkedIn, there's Overstock, there's Evite in there, like they're successful. And then they have these technical debt issues, right? It's not like a beautiful architecture and they become successful. It's usually like a trade-off, right? They're trying to build so fast or grow so fast that they make shortcuts along the way. And that leads to the technical debt. And a lot of times the technical debt is just like lack of tests. And so that really impedes like the velocity of the team moving forward because they don't know if they're breaking anything, right? There's no tests to cover that area. So that's what I've seen a lot is that, you know, sometimes people are forced to take care of technical debt because they can't innovate because they might break a feature that's not tested. And so I think uh, it is scary and it does suck to have a lot of technical debt. What I've seen as a as a team that sometimes work well is, is have a dedicated person, each like sprint or whatever that just works on like maintenance or bugs or that technical debt, right? Instead of developing new features, they're working on the old stuff. And, and that can be useful because it's just temporary. And it's one of those things that maybe doesn't require as much brain power as the new features. So they can... Uh, they can kind of kick back and just write a lot of code and get it done for a couple of weeks, you know? So a uh, team should have a technical debt collector. We called it a, what do we call it? A, it was probably derogatory, so I won't say it, but yeah, we had something that was responsible <laughs> each time. So what you're saying is that the problem of emergent technical debt is actually a sign of success, meaning that you've grown and developed to a point where your early choices are now becoming a problem. And if you weren't successful, then you wouldn't be confronting these problems because your system isn't being used as enough <laughs> to, uh, to become a problem. <laughs> right. And I've seen at these large companies where they actually have an initiative, like 20% of our time must be spent on technical debt this year because it has become 
a productivity problem for people, hmm. right? They're like, we have to fix these so we can continue at this velocity or it's, it's just going to be a struggle, right? So that, that 20% comes down to what would you say they're, they're doing when, when they spend that 20% of their time on technical debt? What would you imagine they're, the process of? Uh, I think a lot of it's it. like re-architecting things so they aren't so tightly coupled, right? And the ability to just work on this portion without this portion. Uh, we've seen a lot of splitting things into like Maven artifacts that can be you know, included elsewhere. So it's a better reuse of code and actually making it so, you know, everything doesn't need to be in this one project. It can just be at this endpoint instead. Mm -hmm. I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about remote employment, especially over the last two years. It's become a, a major thing. I believe both of us are remotely employed. Yeah. Unless you have a very excellent office at the Okta headquarters that allows you to bring all of your personal items in the background. What would you say is different about remote employment today versus in 2017, for example, when you when you started with Okta? Well, so I started as a remote employee, but I was a consultant, right? So I wasn't really employee, but in 2003, I think. So I've been remote for like 20 years now. And whenever I'd negotiate with new clients, it was always like the first question was, can it be remote? Second question was, you know, what's the rate? Mm -hmm. And as like a contractor, I found so much bliss in that because like those are kind of the two most important questions as any employee, right? Especially a developer that might have some kick-ass shit at home that they want to use, right? And so I wish that full-time could be a similar interview process where you just get those two questions out of the way and then you do the interview, mm -hmm. right? Because then you know, like, you know, what the offer is going to be and stuff like that. So I think the difference between 2017 is there was so much of it in the last couple of years. And like Trish, my wife is here in the other room and we have to close doors and we have to, you know, get crisp installed so you don't hear the dogs barking and stuff like that. Whereas before, <laughs> you know, maybe you had a little more ability to be like, hey, I got this meeting for an hour. Can you go to your office? Right. Or I would go to my co-working space. And so there was much more, you know, you're home all the time kind of thing. And so even back in the day, I used to get a co-working spot that I would go to a fair amount just for the bike commute and for the getting out of the house. Right. I've, I've had some of my most productive days in a coffee shop because, you know, I don't know if it's the noise around, but it makes me focus and I can get a lot done. And, and I even see that like, if I take my bike and do like coffee shop to lunch place to afternoon co-working, like each of those little sections, like I have a two hour window and I'm focused, right? I get stuff done in those two hours and like sitting at home all day for eight hours, like it's kind of draining, right? So I like the breaks and getting out there more. And that's probably what I've learned more in the last couple of years than before that was before that I was doing it naturally, right? Because I was always going into a co-working space or traveling to a client. And now it's like, no, you need to stop, go do something else, take your dogs for a walk, you know, have a real lunch, don't have it at your desk because you're just not interacting with other humans as much right? Yeah. yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah. So in light of that, do you have any uh, interesting career advice or suggestions for developers that are looking to get started in, in the Java ecosystem or you know generally it workers these days do you have any career advice always ask for more 
Schedule, yeah, schedule walks <laughs> and lunches. <laughs> right. Well, well, so we have a, or I used to, I don't know if I still will, but a fair amount of read-only meetings, I call them, right? It's a, it's an all-hands meeting or it's a, a product update or something like that. You know, maybe it's a demo. I try to take all of those, like, on dog walks. And, you know, some days it's too hot, right? It's one o'clock in the afternoon, it's 100 degrees out, and you're like, no, I'm not going to do it. But that can be a bike ride then. And I have an e-bike, so there's always wind in my hair, right? I'm not sweating as much as an analog <laughs> bike or whatnot. So, like... If you have an opportunity, like check your calendar, look for meetings that you don't have to speak in and get out of your house and take them, you know, on the road. That does require good internet. When I was up at my parents' house, I kind of suffered this summer because I was in Montana and like you leave the house and there's no internet and you're like, ah, I can't do any walking <laughs> meetings, darn it. But it's a big sky, I understand. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you, you don't want to work. You don't want to do meetings, right? You're like, let's just go out in the woods. <laughs> Well, Matt, it has really been a pleasure talking with you today. I don't know when we'll be able to meet again in person, but uh, hopefully it'll be rather soon and not amidst a dangerous pandemic. That brings us to the end of our podcast. And for anyone who would like to have a little bit of fun at the end, we're going to go to a lightning round. Are you ready, Matt? Oh, yeah. All right. These are tough questions. What is the last song you listened to? I don't know. Had to be yesterday. I listen to Pandora a lot, so it's not a specific playlist. People probably don't know this about me, but I'm a big gangster rap fan. It's my favorite music. I'm a I'm a major hip hop aficionado as well. Nice. Is open source software going to survive in the long run? Well, so Rod Johnson did have a pretty good philosophy back in the day with Spring, and he was saying like it can't really sustain itself. You need to hire people, you need to pay people to work on it. And I think you can look at Spring as one of the most successful open source projects we've seen in the Java space. It's always had backwards compatibility. It's always also had the same people working on it for years and they've been paid and they've been probably paid well, you would think, right? And so I think it is very difficult. We see this with JHipster that if people are doing it on a volunteer basis, like as they get older, Family becomes important. People have kids, right? And all of a sudden, they're like, "Why am I doing this at night?" Right? And so, get some sleep, you as you've do, advised. Right. If you can't <laughs> do open source as like part of your day job, it's really hard to like work on it, right? I'm fortunate enough where I can do a lot of J Hipster stuff as part of my Octa employment, and everyone supports that, and so I don't get burned out. And if I am working late night on it, like I'm having fun, right? I'm integrating a new feature and, you know, it's a good time. So I think like open source does need more support. And you also see all these cloud providers like sucking up the open source project and making money off it, right? That's that's always controversial, but, you know, the spirit of open source is anyone can do anything with it, right? With certain licenses, right? I'm more of an Apache license fan and they're like, yeah, if you want to make money off it, go ahead, right? Like it's for the greater good, so. I think it's a tough balance, right? And we've seen we've seen great projects struggle because you know they can't get the funding or they can't get the people to work on it, right? And so we have it's tough. It's true. I think if you can pay people to work on open source, it'll do better. But it's tough to make money off open source if you don't have a way of making money. You know, it has been a challenge. Let's see. Uh, what do you do to stay healthy? Oh, I just did a twenty-one day sugar detox. So that's you know no sugar, no booze for. 21 days. Ouch. Um, that certainly helps. 
I ride my bike a lot. I do dog walks. I try to do daily dog walks. We have two border collies. So those are they're very enthusiastic whenever I take them. And then, uh, you know, the no sugar thing is helps a lot, but it's tough because you're like, oh, that pizza looks so good. And they don't have like, you know, a lot of people that do no sugar have gluten problems, right? If they eat sugar, like they feel bad. And I don't have that, but I've recognized that if I want to keep like low blood pressure and, you know, feel good, then, you know, cutting out sugar helps a lot. All right. What's one of your favorite movies? Really like Guardians of the Galaxy. That was one that I kind of brought home yeah. and was like, hey, everyone needs to come see this. Like, this is really fun, you know? I watched that having no clue what Guardians of the Galaxy was prior to seeing the film. And I just... Yeah, I didn't either. I've been living in Czech Republic for a long time. You know, uh, I missed a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's a fantastic movie. Uh, I really liked it as well. And last but not least, if we could bring back the T-Rex with cloning, would you vote yes or no to do it? Which continent would you bring him back on? Your continent. <laughs> It'd be pretty disastrous. <laughs> I mean, any <laughs> continent, right? Unless it was like Antarctica. I was going to be like, yeah, try it out. Right. But I don't know. He seems like kind of a reckless character. He might really do some damage or she. I don't know. So you might, you, you'd go with a no? I'd go with a no. I mean, look at Jurassic World, right? Never worked out in any of those movies. <laughs> but the will was always there. Right. <laughs> Matt, thanks so much. This was a great conversation. I wish you well. And uh, thank you. We'll include, we'll include uh, some of your interesting uh, articles and notes and references in the show notes. So thanks again for joining me. Thank you. Good to see you, Oliver. Likewise. Likewise.